Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Wellman, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm not going to act like we didn't just share a good experience for about 30 minutes, but can you mind introducing yourself to everyone out there listening? My name is Douglas Wellman. I've done a variety of things in my life. I was a television producer, director in Hollywood for a number of years. I was the assistant dean of the film school at the University of Southern California. I retired and I've been a hospital chaplain for six years. But my passion is writing uh, uh, historical biographies about people who are of interest. Uh, and I enjoy that, enjoy that very much. And um, the one we're going to talk about today is uh, my book, The uh, Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. More specifically, we're going to talk about Howard Hughes, but my book is a component of that. How did you come across Howard Hughes? How did you even get attracted? I mean, when I found out about him, I just couldn't believe half the stories out there. I'm sure there's some that have been embellished, but some of the stuff that I'm like seeing confirmed everywhere, I was like, whoa, like, wow, I don't know how this guy isn't a part of like everybody's literature. Hughes was unique. He was a genius, uh, inventor, uh, made many, many contributions to uh, engineering, many of which were provided to the United States government because he was a very, very patriotic man. Uh, he was a drug addict and he uh, was obsessive about his privacy to the point that he would leave little false trails on his life so anyone who was looking for them would be going in the wrong direction. As a writer-researcher, that was really entertaining. Uh, I got the information long ago. I was a consultant to a particular organization in the government, a consultant, a visual consultant um, in the group that I worked with there was a, a major general by the name of Mark Music. He's now retired. Mark is a terrific guy. And uh, I got a call one day that said, I found a really interesting story. I've been researching it for six years and I'd like to um, bring it to you. So he came out to Los Angeles with three huge notebooks and notes. He told me a very strange story. Had it not been that it was Mark, a major general, and my other friend who was a colonel, he came to, had they not been people with incredible credibility, I probably would have invited them to leave because it's a weird story. But the entire, but that led me to the entire story of Hughes, which uh, I knew bits and part, bits and pieces of. I had done a television show on Hughes sometime back in the 80s, and um, I was on his... Uh, notorious aircraft that was called the spruce goose no way that itself was amazing so i so i did know quite about it Hughes, but um it was mark's bringing me this weird story that really opened up the door what was mark's story it's the story of uh the book is called boxes the secret life of howard hughes the accepted story of Howard Hughes is that he was a deranged, crazy, 
drug addict, drug addict uh, who lived in the mostly in the Desert Inn Hotel, uh, long hair, six inch fingernails, rotted teeth, uh, smelly. Kleenex boxes for shoes. Yes. And that that was, you know, how he exited the world. As it turned out, uh, Mark, Mark was an incredibly nice man, first of all. He, uh, he was, when he wasn't doing his major general stuff, he was uh, helping people and he helped um, an elderly woman named Eva McClellan. He, she, got in, she got in contact with him and he flew back and forth between his base in Florida to help her with various things regarding her disabled husband. When the disabled husband passed, she called Mark and said, I'd really like to scatter his ashes in Florida at a place where, you know. So Mark flew to Florida, uh, took her to the, or he actually, she was living in Georgia, flew to Florida, took her to, took, flew to Georgia, took her to Florida. They dispersed the ashes in the ocean. And on the way back, she said, and by the way, my husband was really Howard Hughes. And that's where the whole thing started. And of course, his response uh, was that, um, gee, this is too bad. Such a nice woman. She's apparently off a rocker. But she told him the story, and he spent six years looking into it. Six years. Because the things that she said, crazy as they sounded, made sense. And then, as I say, he came out to me and said, can you do anything with this? So I hopped in at that point. Well, the official story, I think, was that he died flying to, it was it the Bahamas or something like that? He was he coming was... from um, the Bahamas. He was going to the United States, to Houston, uh, on a private jet. Let me see if I can find the... Yeah, he was coming from Acapulco to Houston, and he died on the flight. And that whole business was kind of interesting as well, because... When they got to Houston, the medical examiner was told that he couldn't photograph the body uh, or make any record of the body or, you know, fingerprints or things like that. Well, the medical examiner says, hey, I'm a medical examiner. I can do something. So he decided he was going to take fingerprints, uh, which he which he did. The body was so emaciated that they actually had to inject saline into his fingers to plump them up enough to get a fingerprint. So the doctor took the fingerprints, which were scooped up by the FBI. And um, I don't believe they've ever been seen again. We attempted to get those fingerprints from the FBI. And um, we got a lot of cold shoulder over that one. They they wouldn't give it to them. They should be public, but nah. <laughs> you mentioned so, him giving out. You, men you mentioned him giving out false leads or kind of leading people on different trails. Can I just give you a few bits yeah. and pieces of something? Yeah. This is um, this is Howard. He used doubles. He put out false. I'm sorry, I keep looking. He uh, put out false information. So, okay. So this is November of 1970. 
Howard, this emaciated old man has been living in the Desert Inn Hotel uh, in Las Vegas. His keepers remove him from the hotel uh, and fly him to um, Florida where he gets on a, a boat, a, a yacht, and the skipper of the yacht says the guy is long-haired, completely incoherent. All he can say is, uh, I'm Howard Hughes, I'm Howard. That's all he can say. So this emaciated man then goes to Nic uh, Nicaragua. So in March, March, in March, he goes to uh, Nicaragua and he meets with uh, the dictator, General Somoza. Somoza says he's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with this guy. He's normal height, normal weight, normal everything. He's no problems with him. Um, then the same month, an emaciated, drug addict, screwed up Howard Hughes goes to Canada. Um, and then back to Nicaragua. While he's in Canada, he's he goes to Canada. But while he's in Canada, he is seen by people as the Howard Hughes they knew, the you know the regular, completely fine Howard Hughes. Six months later, he goes back to Nicaragua. Now Hughes had problems. Uh, he was under some financial duress at the moment, so. In uh, what six months later, he goes to Nicaragua and meets with brokers from the Merrill Lynch agency who said he was fine, articulate, no problems whatsoever. Three months later, he goes from Nicaragua to London. He uh, is leaving. He's in Florida and where he is, is, is raided by a government agents. He owed. Hughes didn't like paying taxes. No, tax evasion everywhere. That man was doing so much stuff that never got completed all in the guise of tax evasion. Exactly. And so while he's getting ready to leave for London, IRS and customs agents pay a call at him. And it's this shell of a man. And they looked at him and said, well, okay, we can't do anything with that. So they leave him alone. So he goes to London. And three months later, he meets with the governor of Nevada and the Gaming Commission of Nevada, who come to London to talk with him to defend his gaming licenses. And again, they say, there's another wrong with this guy. He's fine. He looks like anybody else his age. Okay. And then three months after that, Howard Hughes owned uh, some airlines. He decided that he might want to purchase Hawker Sidley aircraft for his airlines. So he went to the Hawker Sidley uh, factory and he flew two turboprop and one jet aircraft made by Hawker Sidley. He flew these with the chief test pilot of uh, Sidley Hawker Aviation, who said, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He's smart, articulate, very friendly, and a terrific pilot. Okay. The next month 
it's announced that Howard Hughes has fallen in his London hotel room and he weighs 98 pounds, uh, is mentally and physically incompetent, and the attending doctor says he looked like a prisoner of war. So clearly, there's uh, some interesting discrepancies in that. Why do you think there's so many stories about Howard doing this? Like one moment he's out making deals with ambassadors or talking to ambassadors, and the next, you know, he's back at his hotel room or something of that sort, or he's back at the Desert Inn being locked away for four months. I mean, why do you think there's all this gap? I mean, would you explain on his reclusiveness? I mean, how would you explain him? Well, he uh, he was having, I would say, some mental issues. I don't think they were terrible mental issues. Well, he had syphilis that was going on, treated from the oxycodone or whatever he was taking. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so he, um, but he had always been obsessively, well, I shouldn't say always, but he'd always been uh, a private individual. And as he got older, he became obsessively private. So that was part of it is he was disassociating himself from from people. But the, probably a bigger issue is that because of his uh, interesting way of doing business, he was being sued by half of the world. And he needed to keep them from serving papers. And so it was in his best interests to not be found or pretend to be a crazy person who was legally unservable. So those were the two um, primary reasons. Hughes' parents were an interesting pair. His father uh, grew up in Iowa and he was just flat mean. He was thrown out of schools for beating his schoolmates, both boys and girls, he didn't care, he'd beat anybody. Uh, when he got a little older, he moved to uh, the Southwest, which was still a cowboy country at the time. He had a Winchester rifle that was strapped to his saddle and a club. And anybody who didn't see things his way got a tune-up with the club. Somehow he met a wealthy young woman from Dallas who was the exact opposite. She was um, sensitive, phobic, um, afraid of everything. And the two of them got married. And then, of course, Howard was the product of that. So Howard picked up some characteristics from both. From his father, he picked up the brutality, but not physical brutality. That manifested in his business dealings. And from his mother, he picked up her phobias and uh, social awkwardness and, um, and, and those elements. The, that part, the social awkwardness, continued to get worse as he got older. But a lot of his business dealings, from what I've been told, have been kind of failures, like RKO kind of plummeting. Um, yeah, that's but, true. But he was like very persistent in a lot of his actions and things. And you could see that with like the film The Outlaw, where the censorship office had huge problems with the way he was displaying Jane Russell. But he was like, no, I'm not changing this thing. I mean, he eventually made minor edits, but nobody would take it to the, the, the mat as much as Howard did. Well, his, uh, um, persistent is a good word. He wouldn't give up on anything. You mentioned um, the RKO deal. The, RK, the RKO purchase became a failure 
because of Hughes. It was his meddling and micromanaging that pretty much killed for film production there. So as far as a business deal, it would have been okay if he would have kept his fingers out of the operation. Now you have to understand that Hughes, his cowboy father and uh, frail little mother, it is, it, it, Hughes Sr. took them back into cowboy country, back to the oil business drilling. And they had trouble with drill bits. And so Hughes' father uh, had a very, very good sense of engineering. And he invented um, a drill bit that was far beyond anything else on the market. And they quickly became millionaires. Uh, so it was a complete lifestyle change. But Howard's mother died in, I think it was 1929, I think. He was born in, um, he was born in 1905, and his mother died, I think it was in 1929, after a surgery, and uh, two years later, or 1922. And his uh, father died two years later of a heart attack. And so at 19 years old, Hughes became a millionaire. And he had enough money to do anything that he wanted to do, so he did. And in the early 1920s, of course, the film business was, you know, the films are still silent. And everybody was interested in film. So like a lot of people, he wanted to go to Hollywood. But in his case, he could actually afford to do it. And he ran off to Hollywood to be a film entrepreneur, producer, director. Now, normally, 19-year-olds with a pile of money who go off to engage in something which they know nothing about, generally, they're parted with their money fairly quickly. But, but he wasn't. The films he made were good. He made good films, and they were financially successful. And that was the way his film career went for the next 20 some years. Uh, he was extremely successful at that. And then his other passion, of course, was aviation, which he went into and was extremely successful at that. Uh, but along the way, you know, like most things in life, not everything was a home run. You know, there were some strikeouts. You're quite right. When it came to Eva, her name's Eva or Ava? Eva McClellan. Eva McClellan. When did she come across Howard Hughes? And when did this whole switchover happen where he ended up, you know, meeting her and then getting, I guess they got married, but living out the rest of his life um, with her? That is an incredibly complicated story. Uh, Eva had been a civil servant for, for many years. She went, uh, she finally decided uh, to take a job at Howard Air Force Base in Panama. So she moved there. Hughes, everybody thought he was the, you know, the crazy man. Uh, so Hughes himself, now he had a long, long history of working with the CIA. I do believe he was an agent of some sort. I don't I don't think they just dropped that sub or whatever that was underwater. I think that was a cover story, but that might be conspiracy on my part. No, he he was fully engaged with uh, the CIA because they needed him and he wanted to be there. 
there was <clears throat> uh, United States Air Force airman by the name of Werner Nicely. When Werner left the Air Force, he began to do covert work, apparently for the CIA, <clears throat> uh, working out of uh, Panama. Well, Werner disappeared. And two years later, Werner reappeared. But this time, <clears throat> he uh, calls himself Nick Nicoly instead of Nicely. And the identification that he presents, like the government medical records and things, in those two years that Werner had been gone, he, uh, he grew four inches, among other things. So it is our position that Hughes needed to pretty much hide. The CIA cooperated with him by giving him the uh, credentials of a dead CIA operative. And then he went to Panama. And um, Eva was a very attractive woman. And, you know, they met at Howard Air Force Base. And, and that's where that all started. And she didn't, of course, know he didn't. He was posing as an air maintenance supervisor. That was supposedly why he's there. But it was a job he never went to. Uh, instead, he had a group of aides who came and they would have these huddled meetings talking about things that you know she didn't know at the time. Uh, so he was um, supposedly burner nicely the air uh, aircraft maintenance supervisor. He was making. Uh, the salary for that position back in 1966 was $9,000 a year. The engagement ring that he bought for Eva cost $5,000. So that in itself is kind of interesting. Did she explain how he came up, she came across finding out that he was Howard Hughes or when did it finally come up in a discussion? Yeah, it became kind of apparent that something was was going on and um the man's got but, kleenex boxes on his feet yeah he didn't do that he, uh, but <laughs> he, that was that was the other guy but he was obsessive about germs he frequently wore gloves in the house uh he did things like warn eva that when they were walking through a parking lot never to step in spilled oil because it was teeming with germs uh so yeah, he carried a lot of that with him. Now they had, <clears throat> they moved from um, Panama to Arizona, eventually to uh, um, Arkansas. And they got a lot out in the middle of, but they moved several places there too. But they had some very nice young neighbors, probably about the only people they would talk to. And at one point, uh, I think it was Time Magazine or Life Magazine had a picture of Hughes on the cover. And they looked at that picture and said, that's Nick. That's Nick. Another interesting characteristic, a Hughes' love of aircraft made him an excellent aircraft designer. In 19... Sorry, I'll look at this thing, but very confuses even me. I mean, to be honest, nothing about Howard's life is 
kind of simple, straightforward. He was a real gem. I think it was 1948. He was flying an aircraft of his own design that was uh, that he had, was making for the Air Force. Uh, it was an experimental aircraft. Oh, the XF-11. Yes. Yeah. That crashed, and he broke pretty much everything and was severely burned. Uh, the Nick Nicoly that showed up and married Eva had burn scars in all of the same areas as the burned Howard Hughes. We had a, a after, this book was published in two editions. Uh, uh, and when the first edition of Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes, when that came out, after that came out, a lot of people contacted us. Now, anytime you write something like this, you're going to have all kinds of interesting people show up. But one of them uh, said that she had, she was about 19 years old, a college student, uh, and she had worked for a pharmacy where they lived, and she was delivering his prescriptions, and they became very close. And so it got to the point where she became, she became almost like an assistant to him, actually, she did. And she would prepare these burn treatments and things for him. So she verified all of this stuff for us and, uh, and some other things. So there are so many bits and pieces that match. It's, it's beyond coincidence. Um, and uh, and yeah. it's all detailed in the book. And by the way, you know, when, when I write something like this, which I know is going to be challenged, the documentation and the citations have to be meticulous. And I did that. I made sure everything that I put in the book that was in any way controversial uh, was uh, annotated. So anybody who wants to challenge me, I tell them, go look it up. Where did you get the documentation and your sources from? Like, did you file FOIA requests trying to get those, or did a lot of it come from Eva? A little bit of both. His medical records, we had medical records. Yeah. So Eva released Nick, as he called himself, uh, his medical records to Mark. Then Mark, he was, you know, still a major general at that point, which, um, you know, people respect it. Yeah. He got the medical records of the real Werner Nicely. So that alone, you look at those records and you see these are two people, um, which is another interesting thing because the Department of Veterans Affairs also had those medical records and nobody said a thing about it. But the odds of a fully mature man probably in his... 50s going away uh and then coming back two years later four inches taller you know that alone is uh says a lot yeah. and now mark, as far as the rest of the information uh mark got it uh, a ton of information from eva and as i say he researched this for six years so he pulled all kinds of information in which he then had to verify and, and the hardest part for me is that there was that there was so much stuff from so many directions, so confusing. 
that organizing this into a coherent book was a real challenge. But that's part of the interest of the book. It's just, you read this and you go, I, I just can't believe that happened. How did you choose what you could include and what you couldn't include? The only thing that I got that I did not include, to my recollection, the, the woman who provided, you know, the, the young college girl. By the way, Hughes paid, or Nick paid her tuition and books and everything. She didn't ask for it. She just went to pay her tuition and books, and they said it's already been paid for. Um, so I'm sorry, now I forgot the question. It hasn't just been paid for. He bought the building. Now, uh, I was going to ask where, um, how difficult was it for you to include things and then choose what not to include in the book? I, I didn't exclude anything, ex to my recollection, except the young when the young woman was alone with Nick slash Howard in his later years, he would talk to her about all kinds of things. He was just a complete storehouse of information. But occasionally, she said he would go off into what she would call his ramblings. So he kept talking, but he wasn't really necessarily talking to her anymore. And a lot of very, very interesting things came out of that. And I was told information that had to do with the assassination of President Kennedy. Oh, God, that's my favorite subject. And Hughes was not involved in that. However, he was he knew the people who were, and he knew some stuff. Ooh. So that's Hughes had uh, contacts. Tell me why Mayhew was his assistant, and Mayhew was the guy who was the connection between Johnny Rosselli and the other mob figures used to assassinate Fidel. You gotta understand, I talked to Blakey from the House Select Committee on Assassinations. I've been deep into the JFK stuff for about three years or two years now. Oh, yeah, yeah, and it's it's fascinating. Hughes had, Johnny Rosselli was a friend of his. Oh, God, no way. That's because when uh, Hughes, the operation of Hughes' tool was done in Los Angeles, by a guy by the name of Archie uh, McDonald. His son, Mar um, I got myself confused. His son uh, married uh, a woman whose stepfather was a mobster. And they would have these Sunday Italian dinners, which Hughes would periodically uh, attend. Uh, you mentioned Mayhew. Hughes initial Las Vegas hotel uh, purchases came from the mob. They owned all of that stuff. And, and Mayhew was the guy to get the thing rolling. But since they were mob owned, uh, Johnny Roselli became a factor in expediting that uh, hotel deal. So, yeah, he's through this whole thing. Do you know why Howard Hughes donated money to Nixon's campaign and Kennedy's campaign? The Nixon campaign was because he completely supported Nixon. The Kennedy donation was just a hedge in case Nixon lost. What a genius. I know people go like, that's dirty playing both sides. I was like, yeah, you got one of the horses is going to win. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and so that's that was what was up with that. He did. Uh, Hughes did not like the Kennedys, particularly Bobby. Which, interestingly, since uh, Bobby Kennedy is you know become kind of a folk hero, a lot of people didn't like Bobby um, because he was seen as kind of a brash young rich dilettante and intent you know using sort of my brother's the president and i'm going to do things my way and people didn't like that so he he wasn't as popular as um people might think is uh is there a reason why um when it comes to howard hughes uh actually i think i just forgot my own question Good for you. It's going to be Bobby. Go for it. It was going to be Bobby related. Um, not to really. Why did he try and hire RFK Junior. or not RFK Junior. Why did he? Why did he try and hire RFK's bodyguards the day that RFK was assassinated? Have you ever heard about that? No, I haven't heard of that one. He's literally. There's a letter to Mayhew asking about getting the same accusation of RFK's bodyguards. That's interesting. I know that he hired, after uh, Robert Kennedy was killed, Hughes hired his uh, campaign team. And there were two reasons for that. The first was to get them off the market so they couldn't work for uh, anyone else against Nixon. Um, and the other one was, you know, they were a pretty good team. Maybe they could be useful for Nixon. Even though he believed in Nixon, how does someone like Nixon's personality vibe with a person like Howard Hughes? They seem like polar opposites. I think it, well, I know it was Hughes' strong conservatism that led him in Nixon's direction. Uh, and I think that was really the prevailing, the prevailing issue. And he was willing to commit with to that financially with money both over and under the table. So, he, and, um, you know, he got, um, I think it was before the 1960 election that he had slipped uh, Richard Nixon's brother a little over 200 grand. The Nixon burger. It's the best thing in the world. I'm so happy that exists. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he, he, he got caught. He got out which probably hurt Nixon's campaign. Didn't do it any good, that's for sure. Nixon uh, definitely spoke about it. He was talking, there's a speech where he's talking about um, that he had to because he's a grassroots, he doesn't have money, he's not taking funding from others, trying to cover the whole loan thing. But to me, it's just interesting because Howard Hughes really tried to influence everything around him. I mean, when it comes to, I don't know if you've ever looked at the Atomic Energy Commission and him, uh, but I think it boils down from that movie John Wayne was in where half the cast got cancer. Yeah, it's just north of me here. I've been up there. But I think one of the Hughes was interestingly enough, for all the work he did for defense and the CIA, he was very much anti-war. Which, you know, I think that's that's noble. When they started testing atomic bombs, just near, near, really near Las Vegas, you've probably seen the pictures where, you know, people are at the swimming pool of some hotel and there's a mushroom cloud in the distance. Well, that 
drove Howard absolutely nuts. Uh, and so he went to Nixon and said, you got to stop setting off these bombs in my backyard. You just can't do that anymore. Uh, and Nixon didn't do it. Uh, so there was a little rift with them at that point. Uh, on the other hand of things, um, Hughes was trying to acquire an airline, another airline, and he was getting some blowback about having too many airlines and this, that, and the other thing. And so uh, he went to Nixon and said, I want that airline, fix it. And Nixon did. Do you believe the Clifford Irving scenario? Like, do you think that was Howard that really called in to Clifford Irving? I do. I do. And that's a really good point because they were in Panama when Nick slash Howard got the word about that book. And of course, he was furious. The phone call was now, of course, at this point, Hughes also owned the satellite communication systems, which was nice. He took Eva, Nick took Eva out in the middle of nowhere some one time to a uh, satellite uplink. You know, this is like 1970. So she could call her brother on this satellite phone. She didn't even know what she was doing. He, what's the number? He dialed it, handed her the phone. Well, how did that happen? Don't worry about it. So the phone call itself was a bit mysterious because it did not seem to be traceable. He called and spoke about how that book was completely false. Uh, one of the reporters listening to the call, I should know his name, but I can't think of it, was very familiar with uh, Howard because they'd been more or less friends in Hollywood. And he said, that's definitely him. Meanwhile, Eva was at home listening on the radio and, and Nick had left the house, which he really did. He came back later and she said, that was you. That was your voice. That was you. And he just smiled. Uh, and then at some point later, he did confess to her that, yeah, I'm Hughes. But it took uh, many years for him to get to the point. But yes, the uh, phone call was genuine. And um, it was made by Nick slash Howard from Panama via satellite. Did she ever notice him watching Ice Station Zebra over and over again? Or was that just a... He never commented on that. In fact, it was the exact opposite. He had reached the point where he hated TV. He wouldn't allow them to have a TV. And so the only news they got was by radio. From your personal perspective, why do you think he did all this? Why do you think he tried to go into, do you think it was tax evasion? Do you think it was fear of the mob? Do you think it was fear of the government? Which one do you think? No, I think the primary reason is that he was so overwhelmed with attention and he had his sort of social interaction skills were tapped out. He just didn't want to play anymore. Simple as that. He didn't want to play anymore. He had to continue to conduct his business and he had to find a way to do that without having people coming at him. So the the drug addict guy was a great 
uh, stand-in for him because he was, as I say, legally unservable. Everybody thought that it was Howard. Meanwhile, the real Howard was somewhere unknown where he could leave, live uh, alone and in peace. And he still had this cadre of aides that came every day and took his instructions and relayed them back to his employees. You know, you mentioned uh, Mayhew a while ago. Do you know that Mayhew and Howard never met personally ever? Yeah, for like 20 years, right? Yeah. It's interesting they communicated by letter, but if you know about Howard's germophobia, it's not super impossible. No, and it was actually during the Clifford Irving phone call. Once, uh, once Howard got rolling, after dealing with the Irving issue, he kept going. And that's what got him in trouble because in the tail end of that conversation, he slandered Mayhew, who sued him and uh, later won a judgment against him. So, you know, Mayhew, we're talking, you know, we're in the 70s here. He was making 10 grand a week. And all of the casinos were losing money. If I was paying someone 10 grand a week and everything they did failed, I wouldn't be very happy. Yeah, but if you're a billionaire like Howard Hughes was, I don't think you even noticed that chump change. No, and, and that's true. He would, you know, if he wanted it, he bought it. I, I'm just curious, what was his, because uh, Mayhew's the one that got the Church of the Latter-day Saints involved into Howard's casino dealings and businesses, which... Are you talking about the Mormon will or? Not, not the Mormon will yet. We can get to that if you'd like. I mean, do you believe the Melvin Dumar story is the, it's a good, it, it fits his personality so much. I know the guy has admitted that it wasn't real and all this, but. No, no, I, I absolutely believe that. I spoke to Melvin before he died. Okay. And I also spoke in, in the por portion of the book that Mark and I did. Uh, there is a private investigator involved and i spoke to the investigator magison magiston no uh, jim spiller oh magnuson was the retired f was an fbi agent. yeah uh well let me deal with your first question if i can remember it <laughs> <laughs> i said feel free but that with the, the mormons getting involved in howard hughes's dealings hughes one of the hughes aides was a mormon and uh you know he didn't smoke he didn't didn't smoke, didn't drink, was incredibly polite and efficient. Uh, in the Mormon culture, it's you're supposed to be a really good person, and this guy was a really good person. So Howard developed the theory that Mormons were good people, and that's the kind of people who ought to work for him. Um, and so that's kind of what started it. That's crazy. I mean, it's smart, smart. I mean, it's really risking it on a whim of like a pre-deserved, pre-contermined uh, preconceived notion but it worked out for him apparently i mean you said his casinos were losing money i didn't know that i thought his casinos were doing quite well because of the mormons no first of all he overpaid for them his pal uh johnny roselli was absolutely of no assistance in getting him a good deal that makes no, that makes sense so he <laughs> overpaid to the mob once he owned the hotels he only did minimal maintenance. He didn't make any improvements or anything. He just ran them. 
And whatever Mayhew was up to, it was not productive. So yeah, they were all losers. Did you have a perspective on Howard Hughes or an understanding of Howard Hughes before this story dropped in your lap? No, not to this degree at all. As I say, I did a television show on him in the 80s. And uh, so I did know something. I had um, an uncle who had worked for the Hughes organization, although like most people, he had no personal contact with them. And it was a curious story. I, I was very interested in aviation. So, you know, you poke into those things a little bit. But I had nowhere near the background on Hughes that I ended up um, getting. Was there any secrets that were evolved to Eva at all about Nick or something that he might have gave insight into to understand more about Howard Hughes and get to who the actual person was? Well, he did end up telling her stories about a lot of different things, none of which would be... Did he ever sleep with Jane Russell? That's the question I got to know. Oh, <laughs> Howard <laughs> slept with everyone. In fact, he um, right before he left, for Hollywood, the 19-year-old Howard uh, married uh, a Dallas socialite, and they went off to Hollywood, where uh, Howard just couldn't keep his pants on, and uh, not the kind of thing that makes for a happy marriage. So uh, she got tired of him, and off she went. Uh, so that was the end of that. Uh, but then he was a handsome man, a wealthy man. A womanizer, you know, then the uh, the results of that were expected. Why do you think he was such an attraction to the United States government, like the CIA or the FBI? Well, uh, because he had, first of all, he wanted to help. Secondly, he had the means to help. Uh, and in terms of financial means. And also, he was incredibly creative. He had made all of these aircraft and interesting things uh so you're familiar with the uh, glomar explorer i would imagine uh, briefly i mean i've been told it a couple times i know it's about uh trying to raise that sub that was underwater but right i do believe that it was probably a success i don't think they necessarily failed it wasn't a total fail it wasn't a total success let me put a positive spin on that it's like when the government says they shoot down a UAP, but they couldn't recover it. I was like, when have you guys, ever, you guys will go to the middle of the jungles in, Indi in India to, you know, try and find something. So I'm just curious. A Soviet submarine sank and the, our government wanted it to get the code books and electronic, whatever they want. They want something. <clears throat> the problem with it was it would be enormously expensive to try a recovery operation. So they went to Hughes because he had the financial wherewithal, first of all, to do the job. Then they needed a cover story. And that was that Hughes was making a ship for deep sea mining. And that was, you know, that was perfectly acceptable. You know, that made sense. So the Glomar Explorer was made with a compartment underneath it where they could lower uh, you know, hoists and, and things and supposedly recover precious minerals from the ocean. In fact, they went down to get the submarine. Uh, they did pick it up, but it broke in half before they raised it. So they got 
They got half a submarine and not exactly, and not really what they wanted. So it was partially successful. There's another kind of interesting footnote. But anyway, the reason the CIA went to him specifically was because he was pretty much the only one with the money and the credibility to say, hey, I'm going to make a deep sea mining ship for a half a million dollars in those days. And people would go, oh, well, that's our. In the area near where the Glomar Explorer was, a few centuries ago, three Spanish ships had sunk and they were carrying gold. So after the, uh, after the submarine incident, the Glomar Explorer went over and stationed over one or more of those wrecks for a period of time. And it's our speculation, we can't prove it, but we think he probably went down there and recovered a whole pile of gold out of those wrecks. Speculation, but um, he probably made a profit on this deal one way or another, I'd say that. I think the government definitely punted him money, but the Spruce Goose was like his famous go-to, you know, invention that he had. But besides it flying that one time, I don't think it never got deployed into the military or anything like that. I mean, did you look at kind of some of his, obviously we talked about his business dealings before, but if you really examine his life overall, and you were going to tell someone who is brand new to Howard Hughes, would you consider him a success? Oh yeah, absolutely. I would, cons because his failures and he had them, but that's a normal part of doing business. The Spruce Goose was an interesting idea because they were uh, careful, you know, metal was in shortage. So the aircraft was made out of a wood product that his people invented called Duramold. So they wouldn't have to use metal. The aircraft itself was absolutely incredible. Uh, I've never, you could, um, the wings were so big that I could walk standing up down the wing to the second engine. The, I climbed up into the trail tail, which is five stories high. I got to the top. You could set up a table and have a poker game up there. That's how big this thing was. Absolutely amazing. There were various iterations of the aircraft planned uh, for cargo troops. It was also uh, a design where it would uh, hold equipment like tanks. Now, that's a lot of weight. I don't know. But he didn't finish it in time. And it cost the government some money, and uh, they wanted him to explain himself, which he did. He had to go before Congress, which he absolutely hated. Uh, and then just his own persistence and ego. He said, I'm going to fly this thing. And so he did. I spoke with a um, mechanic who was actually on the flight. Uh, and he, he said it was pretty darn interesting. <laughs> they had opened the, um, it had, you know, landing lights in the wings. And they, you could, they were on hinges. So they, he had opened the hinge and was looking out the landing light port as they took off. Um, he didn't fly very far, and he never did it again. And then they uh, they drew up a design for a, a jet-powered aircraft, uh, but he, then he parked the thing in um, 
Long Beach, California, and left it there with this one guy that I talked to. He'd, I, this was about mid-80s. He'd sat there for 40 years babysitting an aircraft that nobody ever came to see. Nothing ever happened with. Did Eva, did Eva ever explain Nick's death when he finally left, how he died? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, he had cancer. It was becoming uh, pretty obvious. It started with bleeding from one of his ears. And, you know, it was sort of a, kind of a common, common death. Uh, and, and um, yeah, so, yeah, we, we knew all about that. Uh, one of the other things about, Nick, Howard had a profound hearing loss in one year, in one ear, and was known to be very nearsighted. Nick had a profound hearing loss in the same ear and was very nearsighted. He would have to have a magnifying glass and, and hold things up like that. There are so many similarities between the two people that it's it's pretty much you just can't um ignore it and they're one a couple of friends neighbors the bozemans would always comment that if they came over he would always put his hands under his thighs so that they wouldn't notice the in his thinking they wouldn't notice the burn scars so yeah, but it's, it's, in terms of, of Nick's death, um, there was nothing, you know, really unusual about that. He's just an old man who had cancer. You mentioned the sources and things, but how difficult was it just for the public's reception of people who might be – because it's like the JFK stuff. You meet a lot of people with varying opinions, and people don't like their opinions to be wrong. So I'm curious how difficult was it for you releasing the book about people that might have a different view of Howard Hughes? When people, I didn't get as much as I expected, honestly, but when people came and said, that's a stupid story, that can't be true. And I said, look, did you read the book? Usually they haven't. So read the book and check my citations and then come back if you want to talk about it. Most of them never came back. The ones that did said, mm, yeah, I think you got something there. The biggest pushback I got was from a man who had worked for Howard Hughes. And the last time he actually saw Hughes personally was in 1957, but he continued to work with him over the year, over the years. Now, when the first edition of Boxes uh, was published, I was on vacation. I was up at Pebble Beach Golf Course and my assistant called me and she was a bit shaken. She said, some guy just called about your book and, and he might be dangerous. Well, that's kind of interesting. So when I got back, there was a phone number. I called him, and he had been um, employed by Hughes, and he was bound and determined that I was a liar and that um, I was just doing this because I wanted to make a movie for money. And so I explained to him. I sent him a book. I don't know if he ever read it. But we would have conversations once in a while. So, and, and they were polite, generally. But we had one conversation and he said, why don't you come to the city where I live in and we'll have lunch and talk about this. Fine. So I went down there and uh, 
when I got to the restaurant, he'd brought a stack of books about Howard Hughes, like he was trying to impress me with his knowledge. I brought a, a single file folder and we would talk a little bit and I would pull a document out of my file and say, well, okay, explain that. But he never could. Everything I handed to him, he could not explain. Now, I like the guy, honestly, even though we had, when we talked about Hughes, the conversations were adversarial, but I think he was a nice guy. And uh, I actually, after we had that lunch, I sent him an email saying, hey, you know, I'd like to be friends. You're a nice, interesting guy. And he never sent anything back and I haven't heard anything from him since. He was the only one that dug in his heels and said, um, I ain't buying it. I mean, you know, who actually vehemently didn't buy it. Do you know if Nick had any kids? No, he did not. Okay. Because that's the big thing with his estate, if you know the fights over oh, that. Oops, yeah. sorry, misspoke, misspoke, completely misspoke. Yes, he did. He had no official kids. He had a lot, apparently a few illegitimate ones. And one of them, that's something else that happened right after the first book was released, published. I got a call who, from a woman who identified herself as Cindy Hughes. Uh, Howard's illegitimate daughter and she said I know this sounds crazy I'm not even going to try to explain it if you would please contact this private investigator in Texas by the name of Jim Spiller he'll tell the story and verify it okay so I called Spiller and it was interesting Spiller on the Mormon will trial Spiller had worked for Noah Dietrich on the on the defend the will side and, and investigated everything. And he told me that when he was doing that back in the seventies, that uh, he had learned that Howard had a, a daughter in Texas. Later on, years later, decades later, Cindy was trying to prove her that Howard was her parent. She found uh, Hal Roden's book. He was the attorney for, for, um, uh, Dietrich, and he met, and in the book it mentions Jim Spiller. So he, she contacted him, and uh, pro bono he hopped in on the thing and said, "Yeah, let's see if we can get this done." So uh, that that, and we have some DNA tests. There's another interesting thing. It's kind of complicated. I don't know if we can actually get into this, but through uh, Archie McDonald, who I, I mentioned the mob connection, is a connection to the murder of mobster Bugsy Siegel, which this story goes everywhere. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, but now, uh, so we know, but in that particular case, we found another child who supposedly was fathered by someone else, uh, but he looks, looked, he's not deceased, exactly like Howard Hughes. And Mark had DNA tests done, and they are related. Since then, uh, Mark has uncovered a few other people uh, who claim to be Howard's illegitimate children. And there's two of them who apparently are the real deal. So, yeah. So did he officially have children? No. Did he have children? Yes.
did Eva ever give you guys any materials or anything that would be that she might have found later after uh, Nick's death? Oh, yeah. Actually, she gave them to Mark prior to the death. One of them, of course, was that $5,000 diamond ring. What, what motivated primarily the second edition of the book, Eva had given Mark the boxes. And uh, we were still writing. I was still writing the first book. Didn't quite have time. He didn't have time to go looking at it. After the first book was published, he started rummaging through the file. And he found a lapel pin. Uh, and the lapel pin said United States Congressional Team Who Helps People. I can't remember what it says, right? So Mark and I both assumed that that was probably some kind of uh, thing you could buy in the Congressional gift shop or something. But we both looked into it, and it turned out that that pin was only given to industrialists and people who had provided special services to the government. Uh, the guy I talked to said sometimes they would make an exception for someone like Henry Kissinger. Well, okay, so how did Nick? Nicoly get that pin. More interesting was that those pins were not struck until Hughes was supposed to be dead. That was curious. So then the question became, well, who issued these pins? Nevada, um, Paul Axelt had been the governor of Nevada when Hughes was on his hotel buying spree. And they worked together on that. Uh, I don't think they ever met personally, but they worked together. He then became a Nevada senator. Laxalt was on the committee that issued those special pins. So there's a connection right there. Laxalt knew that Hughes wasn't dead, and he got that pin to Nick. Um, out of, I think, his respect and appreciation. There's a picture of the pin in the book and all of the documentation, the Congress, uh, conversations we had with the government officials on that one. I guess I would just ask you one last question, but how would you explain, like I said before, to a younger generation about Howard Hughes? We're just sparking up an interest in learning more about history. You've done various works on history. Um, which I think is important. We're gonna. I'm gonna have to have you back on to talk about your book about Hiroshima. But I'd love to. Do that. I, I would say, Robbie, we are told over and over again that history repeats itself, and that is absolutely true. So those of us who study history occasionally have an interesting window on the future. So. Um, so that's very that's very important. Uh, and I've forgotten the question again. I was saying that what how would you explain to look into someone like Howard Hughes to someone who's never heard of the guy? Well, first of all, he's a completely unique person, and his story itself is absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's just fun to look at look at it and read it. But there are so many things that he did that have kind of been forgotten which are really critical to the way we 
we live now. You know, he started uh, with a tool company, then it was Hughes Aviation, then Hughes Helicopters, then Hughes Aerospace and Hughes Satellite. All of those things out there came out of Hughes, you know, his organization. Some of the early ones he was directly involved in inventing. The later ones were done, you know, under his control and direction. So his contributions to industry and technology were massive, which we have all benefited from. And um, his contributions to the government, which, you know, people don't know how much he did contribute to the CIA and defense. He was very involved in it. I don't know how much it was, but I've looked. There's stuff that's just secret. But he was an incredibly important individual, an incredibly strange individual, uh, and probably, certainly, one of the most important and fascinating people of the 20th century. You said you believe the Melvin Dumar story. Yes. The Mormon will? Yes. Okay. Well, can I ask why you have such belief of it? It's well documented. It's in the book, actually. Uh, there is a uh, paper trail. Spiller is involved in that one, too. There's a paper trail on that. Uh, it, it's kind of complicated, but the will was given to somebody who no longer, the handwritten will is the one we're talking about. It was given to someone who uh, no longer wanted it. Then Hughes gave it to one of his guys who was like a bag man and muscle is basically what the guy did. He took the will with instructions that, you know, when Howard was, that when Howard was officially gone, he would get a phone call. He got the phone call and took the will to um, Melvin Dumar at his gas station. Now, the story was that years earlier, Dumar was driving down a, a road in Nevada and he found an old man in kind of bad shape. He gave him a ride to the, the hotels in Vegas and the man told him he was Howard Hughes. And of course, he thought he was nuts. He didn't think anything more about it. So this well, uh, uh, Melvin was out pumping gas. Guy walked into the station and walked out. When Melvin got back, there was an envelope and that had the will in it. Uh, and he kind of panicked. He didn't know what to do with it. Um, so, and this was a, an enormous mistake, but he decided to get it out of his hands and he took it to Salt Lake City and dropped it off at the president of the, the Mormon church. Well, later when this came up, there is massive information showing that the, um, you know, the will is real, but he lied about saying he'd never seen it before, and that's what killed him. Now, later on, Spiller, it, um, the, the bag man for Hughes was a guy named Levane Forsyth. Spiller went to find out, was this the real deal or not? Because now he was working for Dumar. And he traced um, LeVar's steps and documented with witnesses that all of the things that were said were done with that Mormon will actually happened. There was a hand uh, handwriting check of Hal Roden who was the attorney in that case, 
got samples. He got the will, and then he got a sample of Howard Hughes' handwriting, which nobody could dispute was actually from Howard Hughes, and the samples matched. So a lot of stuff. It's it's in the book. It's another complicated story. Uh, but after uh, after doing the research and uh, speaking with Melvin, I and Boatman Marcus were we're one hundred percent convinced that that will was real. Well, I appreciate the research you have done and giving me the time to talk about some of it as well, too. Like I said, I'm a younger generation trying to understand history here, and it, you come across a figure like Hughes, it's going to stop you dead in your tracks. I am so excited that you are doing this, Robbie. Uh, history gets neglected. In my previous comment, knowing history is an enormous advantage, and it's a lot of fun. You know, there's a lot of cool stuff in history. You know, if you didn't care anything at all about Howard Hughes, you read the story just for, you know, I, I was in the comedy business before. And uh, if I'm writing a book like, uh, you know, A Teenage Girl in Auschwitz, not a lot of room for comedy in that. Yeah. But in the Hughes story, occasionally I could throw some stuff in just because the whole thing is so weird. <laughs> it's kind of fun. So if you only read for enjoyment without caring about Hughes, it's a fun book. Well, where can people find your book, Mr. Wellman? Uh, probably at this point, the book was published, I think, six years ago. So uh, it's on Amazon.com. That's the easiest way. And other online sources, Apple and, you know, all of those places. Do you have any other links you'd like to promote, like a Twitter or social media or anything? DouglasWellmanAuthor.com. That's it? DouglasWellmanAuthor. Do you have a Twitter or you not use Twitter? I do have a Twitter. Uh, I don't. Uh, yeah, Twitter is. I'll link it in the description. I'm going to follow it as soon as we get done. It's uh, Douglas.Wellman, I believe. Okay. That's good. Someone yeah, stole my handle, so I had to put a one after it. I was like, damn. <laughs> yeah, I get in there kind of early. Douglas.Wellman, I believe. Well, I'll make sure I link all your links in the description. Um, And I appreciate the time, like I said, again, for speaking with me on my show about Howard Hughes. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.